turn the scriptures to Luke chapter 15. We are in part three of a series on what does it mean that God is our Father. God calls himself the Father. And today we're going to look at perhaps the most profound passage in the Bible on showing us what the Father is like. We're going to spend some time in this text. And so, and it's just such a rich text. And for those of you who, who have heard it, it's called the parable, it's famously called the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal means he who is wasteful and extravagant. Um, but really, I, I agree with Pastor Tim Keller that it should really be called the parable of the prodigal God, the God who is extravagant. And it is a story about a father and two sons. I'm going to read this text and um, we'll get into this message that I've entitled, What is Mine and the Spiritual Orphan? This is the Word of God. And he, that is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But... He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. 
He was lost and is found. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for today's message. It's such a big story, Lord. There's so much in it. And I often... I regularly and often feel inadequate to preach your gospel, but especially as we're going through this series and as I'm preaching this profound text, Lord, I pray that you'd take this babbling lips and uh, you would make yourself be seen. That we would see you as our Father. We would see this glorious Father and go to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a this this parable, this incredible story. It has been studied so much, and um, nobody tells a story like this except Jesus. I think, you know, some people think, uh, "Oh, Jesus, he's just another one of the re- religious figures." I don't think so. No Buddha, no Muhammad, nobody ever came up with a story like this, with all its riches and all its profundities, and only one who could possibly be from God, who is God who is the Son of God, could have ever told this story. And I think this is, one, to me, it's one of the evidence that Jesus has got to be God. But, um, you know, we're going to spend some time in this text, and, um, you know, I can't get into all that is in this text. And I've entitled this message, uh, What is Mine and the Spiritual Orphan? And I'm going to go three parts in this message, as I often do. Three parts are, what is mine? <laughs> the spirit of what Jesus is saying, this commentary on these two sons, how they are looking for what they want for themselves, right? What is mine? Part two, I'm going to talk about what is a spiritual orphan. Spiritual orphan, right? Now, we often don't see, don't know how to be connected to our Father. And three, the way to being the Son, back to sonship, to have our Father back, right? Let's talk about what is mine. Um. You know, in order to understand this, this, this story, is, it's an ancient story, and it's set within a cultural context that is so different than ours that sometimes it's hard to pick up the nuances of what is said. And the story, I mean, it's, it's actually a lengthy story as far as, far as Jesus' parable goes, but even still, the narrative is very um, economical, and these little details just go through. And when we hear the story, we don't you know, hear, feel the impact of the story because we don't um, we don't feel and know and understand the world that is being said. Now, you know, many people have studied this. Anthropologists and archaeologists and so forth have studied the story. You don't actually have to entirely go back 2,000 years to understand. There are people today living in cultures and living a, a, a style of life. The way they relate to their land, their, the, the, the forms of obligations they have across generations to fathers and sons, were still very similar to the way it was back then, 2,000 years. And when this story is told to people, this has been done again and again, this story is told to people, it is a shocking story. This story is told to people in South America or in Africa, to people who live in, in the way that's still, still not unlike the way it was during Jesus' time. They, tell, they hear the story and they, they react they are shocked. They are stunned. I mean, they're horrified, quite frankly, to hear parts of this story because they just can't believe that this could actually happen. And in order to try to make you feel some of the weight of this, let me try to unpack some of these things. So there's two sons. And the second son says to his father, Hey, I want, gets up one day, 
I want the portion of the property that's coming to me. And here's what he's saying. So, everybody in, in, in the ancient world, they would have understood that the way there is, is all the sons they own, all these things that the father owns, it's all going to come to them. That they're going to divide it up between them. And typically what is done is that the first son, because he is, he is the, he's going to become what they call the paterfamilias. He's going to be the patriarch of the family. And he carries the name of the family. He's given a double portion. And so all the sons, they actually know precisely what portion of the wealth of the family actually belongs to them. So if there's two sons, it comes, it's very clear. The first son is going to get two-thirds, and the second son is going to get one-third. And so when this son is asking, he knows exactly what he's asking for. One-third of everything, Dad, that you are worth, give it to me. That's what I want. And unlike today, today our money is a little more fungible. You get a bank statement, there's a number on that thing, and you know, you get an appraisal maybe for your house. All these things that it's worth, you could divide that number up and you could divvy it up in the children. Now, today, even today, the way, only way I think we can try to get a feel for this, imagine if one of your sons were to say this to you about your house. I need to get one third of the value of this house. Dad, now. <laughs> You're like, what are you talking about? You know, the father, he actually does this. I mean, if my son were to say that to me, I would just be looking at him like, are you, are, have you gone completely nuts? <laughs> Do you understand what you're asking for? I mean, if you own the house and everything, everything has to be divided up, one-third of the, um, the value, the only way you can do it is you have to sell this house. What if this house was in your family for several generations? There's tremendous memories in this, in this house. You'd have to sell it, the money from it, and then one-third be given to him. You know, people they, they in, who are in communities and in cultures that still are like this, they would hear, they're horrified to hear this story because they, they, they've been, the anthropologists have gone around, you know, one tribe after another and says, have you ever heard any of this ever happened? They hear the story, and immediately, the, they, first they just start to react. They start to get really offended and angry. They're like, What? What kind of son could be like this? And when the, and people are asked, so has this ever happened in your town? They're like, no, are you kidding? Has this ever happened in your village and your tribe? They're like, no, there's no way. Because if a son were to ever say to his father this, you understand what his son is asking for? His son is saying, destroy your family's wealth. The land. People, today we just think land is a value. You, you, people don't sell their land. It's this idea that you own your land, but actually in cultures like this, they don't believe that they quite entirely own their land. In a certain sense, the land owns them. They get to watch their land for a certain number of years, 60, 70, 80 years, and then it's passed on, and you know what? It's your family. Your family across generations owns the land. In a sense, the land owns your family. You're so deeply tied to it. If you had to sell your land, you know what you're saying? I'm going to make my grandchildren poor. I'm going to make my great-great-grandchildren poor. You are impoverishing your whole family. You are doing pro- profound damage to your family. So this is absolutely unthinkable. And, so, and then even more so for a son to say to his father, i got to have it now. We're talking about his inheritance. When does a son get an inheritance? When do any of you get an inheritance? Hmm? Just think about that for a second. 
When you get an inheritance, after your daddy dies. <laughs> so if you say to your dad, would any of you want to go say this? I mean, just try this. Let's just see what will happen. Go to your dad, if your dad is still alive, and say, hey, dad, can I get what, what, is, what belongs to me right now? He would just probably just not even understand what you're saying. You know what you're really saying to him? I want you to be dead. I wish you were dead. Because all you are to me is one-third of this wealth. So be dead. And you know, these tribes, these, these, uh, these um, clans that still live like this, well, as soon as they heard this story, they knew exactly what it meant. They understood the land, the cost to the family, the tribe, and they understood that this son is, he might, I mean, it's worse than spitting on his father. And they say that if this were to happen, you know what would happen? If any, any son were to do this, you know what would happen? Probably the village would be so outraged. His cousins, his other family would be so outraged, they'd want to kill him. Like, that's why it would never happen. Because if you did this, the offense would be so tremendous that they'd probably go out there and want to kill you. <laughs> At the very least, they would kick you out. They would ostracize you. You could never come back. They would try to rub your name out. They would never speak this whatsoever. Because the humiliation on the father would be so tremendous, nobody would ever bring it up. The son doesn't exist. <laughs> that son never did this thing. We would never bring it up. It would be such a profound wound that the only way to do this would be to snuff the name out, to get rid of him or to kill him. That's what I'd have to do. And there's actually a story. They, they would ask all these tribes, and there's one. they actually found one clan. They said, yes, we've heard. It was like, this has never happened. They went around to one after. It's never happened. But they actually came to one, and it happened. And they said, yeah, it happened. And they said, so it happened. One son actually said something like this to his father. So then what happened? His father died of grief. It completely destroyed the man. And then he died of grief. That's what happened. It's like it happened once. And it's like so well known, this story. And that's what it says. This first son, you could see what his agenda is. You know? He didn't care about the dad. I just got to have my stuff. What is mine? You know, the father, and I won't get into the whole story today, the father comes back. When he comes home, the father gives this fattened calf. The way the father acts, it's outrageous. Right? Everybody else thinks you should murder your son, and it would be justified. At the very least, you should punch him down. But what the father does is he actually does it. He divides it up. And then he waits and waits and waits. And then when the son comes home, everybody's supposed to beat him off, but instead the father runs to him. He gives him his ring, which is a sign of his name. He gives him his robe, which is probably his robe. The best robe is his robe. And then he has a feast. Everybody else is like, are we supposed to love this guy? Aren't we supposed to hate this guy? Instead, he signals to everybody how they're supposed to behave. Let's dance. We're not just going to have a meal. We're going to have the greatest meal of my life. Because you know what the fattened calf is? The fattened calf is like... In these cultures, they don't eat meat every day. Today, you just drive down to the local Safeway or to Costco, and you can get meat. You don't even have to be that rich, and you can get pretty good meat today. right? But this is a culture, they don't eat meat regularly. It's special. And then they have 
these animals, and, but they have one that they feed in a special way, and they're not going to eat that particular calf until it's the most important, the most celebratory day. Maybe your daughter's wedding. Maybe a 50th anniversary. I mean, it is the most glorious day. That is your Kobe. <laughs> that would be like your Kobe cow, right? Today, I don't know, it's the closest thing we can get, the Kobe specially fed meat. This is super-duper expensive steak. That's what he's doing for this rat of a son that everybody wants to kill. Now, let's shift to the second son. Now, it's pretty easy to see the, this younger son, how he says, Dad, I don't want a dad. I wish you were dead. I just want this stuff. Give me my wealth, your wealth. That's all I want from you. What you are to me is this. But then you go to the second, this second time, then you go to the second one, which is actually the first son, the older son, and the way he behaves is very interesting. Everybody's celebrating. He's, everybody can see the problem is probably weeping. He's dancing. The man was humiliated before. He doesn't care. He's laughing. He's like, celebrate with me. And everybody goes, you know, we're supposed to honor this man. Let's do this. But you know what happens? The older son comes back and he causes the most horrific scandal. So the story begins with a most horrific scandal. The story goes into the latter portion with yet another horrific scandal. The older son... Everybody is at this party. Everybody in town is there. All the cousins, all everybody is there. Everybody is saying, gosh, this is crazy, but we're here. We're going to eat this incredible meat. And yet, here we go. The one person who's supposed to be there, the first son is supposed to be running this party. The first son is supposed to be ordering the servants around. The first son is supposed to be hosting this. He's supposed to be running the party so that the father can be the host, embracing his guests, And here he is. He's the one who's not there. He's the one who hates this. He is disgracing his father. He's humiliating his father. And his father has to leave the party as everybody's out there. (laughs) This is bad. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? And what is the reasoning behind it? What's his motivation? What you see is this. Where was my party? Where was my goat? We're, we're, I didn't get to hang out with my friends. And all along, I was good for you. But you see, when the father's heart is overflowing, all that his father is about is there, and it's being poured out. His son, is that where he is? No. <laughs> the younger son stabbed his father in the heart. And, you know, it doesn't take much to see, you know, um, I've been, I've, I've considered this sermon a lot. I was listening to Tim Keller's sermon on this. Tim Keller says, it's not hard to tell. This is maybe the greatest day of his father's life. And on the greatest day of his father's life, what does the older son do? He stabs his father in his heart. Why? Because at the end, he's not any different. He's just saying, where's mine? What is mine? What about my stuff? You know, to a certain extent, he actually has a beef. He has a legitimate beef. Because the father impoverished the family. One third of the wealth is gone. The two thirds that is left, where's it going to go to? It's going to go to the first son, right? 
So now if the father is saying, well, he's not going to be a servant, he's not going to be, a, he's not going to be a, um, our hired hand, he's going to be a son, and we're all going to treat that means it's going to entail cost to the son. The son is going to lose wealth for this. It's not just his party. He's not just offended that his brother, you know, slept around and wasted all the money, which it was a fortune. He's not just offended by that. It's he's going to lose. He's going to lose a portion of his money, and he is mad. He is furious. Enough to humiliate his dad. He's like saying, it's mine. And so what you have here in this story, what you have here in this story is there's two paths. You can have a father, but at the end of the day, you can still say, I don't really care about the father. I just care about what's mine. Um, Let me read a portion out of this book. I think this is Tim Keller's best book. He's written a number of books now, and um, it's a short one. It's an easy read. It's a quick read, right? And let me encourage you, if you've never read this book, it's called The Prodigal God. It's Tim Keller's take on the on this Luke 15 passage. And it's not long, um, but I think, you know, I hope this book is read 100 years from now, 200 years from now, because this understanding of who God is as the Father takes you deep right into the heart of Christianity. But let me read this, um, a, portion, a couple portions of this. It says here, Do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the Father for himself. Not love the Father for who he is. They both were using the Father for their own self-centered ends rather than enjoying, loving, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated him from either by breaking his rules or by trying to keep them diligently. Isn't that weird? Everybody can see that the younger son despised his father and was just using him. He goes off. And you know, we know with people like that, the people who don't believe in church, and I don't want to church, don't believe in the Bible, God, Jesus, whatever. And we know that. The people who, who just waste their money and who live the so-called, what we call the sinful life, right? But we often don't understand that there's another way to do it too. You can come into the religion. You can say, I follow all the rules and I'll be a good son. But you all along, what you really want is just the stuff. You don't really care about the father. It's a way to rebel. Right? So this, this ad, uh, he's talking about the attitude of the older brother. Why is he so angry with the father? Because he feels he has the right to tell the father how the robes, the rings, and the livestock of the family should be deployed. He thinks he knows how all this stuff should, where it should go. And of course it should go to him, right? In the same way, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God. To control him. To put him in a position where they think he owes them. <laughs> Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they're actually rebelling against the Father's authority. If, like the older brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey Him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, He may be your example, and you can come and say, Jesus inspires me, but Jesus is not your Savior you are actually still trying to be your own savior. 
Underneath the brothers, both brothers, sharply different patterns of behavior, it's actually the same motivation and the same aim. Both are using the father in different ways to get the things on which their hearts are really fixed. It was the wealth. It was the father's stuff. Not the love of the father that they believed would make them happy and fulfilled. It's the stuff. That's what I want. It's the stuff you can give me, Dad. Not you. That's what I mean by what is mine. And, but in, in a very real way, both sons, they're sons, but they're not sons, really. The first one you can see, he's, he's making himself legally, he's disowning his dad. Financially, in every way, relationally, publicly, he's making himself an orphan. You can see he's an orphan. He runs off and he's an orphan. But do you understand that the older brother, too, is a kind of orphan? The older brother is an emotional orphan. Relationally, he's an orphan. He's in the house. He's acting like a good boy, good son. But really, he has no real connection to the father. He's an emotional orphan. Let me move to the second portion of the message, spiritual orphanhood. All sin. You know, many of you, I, I say this in many different ways. Let me just, let me say this kind of bluntly and rudely. Almost... All of you, in fact, it's probably all of you, all of us, you are just shallow. You have a shallow understanding of sin. You have a shallow understanding of what's wrong with you. You're shallow. Okay, just own that. Let me just say that to you. And I'm, I'm, I'm in this too, right? I have to say this to myself a lot. Say, son, you're shallow. You suck. Your understanding of sin sucks. Now, it's just that I may be slightly better because I study this and I've been trying to apply this for my life. And that's why I'm the pastor, so to speak. Hopefully, I have something to impart to you that you don't have. But you have a shallow understanding of sin. And all people who sin, which is all people, <laughs> you know, you're really functionally like orphans. You're legal orphans, financial orphans, you're relational and you're emotional orphans. And let me just ask you this, you're spiritual orphans. And what is an orphan like? Let me just actually just think about this a little bit. Now, most of you probably have fathers and mothers. Some of you may have had a poor father or a poor mother or you got divorced. And you have some feeling of what it's like, right, to not have to be loved that way. And you have some experience of the orphan. If you've had a decent father, and I mean, it's just, I mean a great father, just a decent one, the C-minus dad or mom, you, you may not quite get this. But um, orphans, let's just talk about orphans. They're insecure, they're insecure financially. They don't know where their clothes are going to be. They don't know if they're going to be in this house. They don't know if they'll be homeless. They don't know if they'll be hungry. You know, they're also emotionally insecure. You know, all human beings are hungering that somebody important that we call my dad, my mom, somebody would love me and say I'm significant. They're emotionally hungry. Emotionally, profoundly, emotionally insecure. And they feel vulnerable, and they move out into life in fear. Right? Not security, fear, insecure. Orphans are also selfish. Because there's always scarcity. There might not be enough food. I might not be in this house. Where's my clothes? Where's my stuff? And so lastly, they're always thinking about, i got to get my stuff. Orphans, they compare. They compare. Hmm. That person's got this, and will I get that too? This 
this. Um, we have some we have some dear friends, my wife and I, um, on the East Coast, and they they adopted a child, right? So um, the husband is Caucasian, and the wife is of Chinese descent, and they have a they have a son. They you know they had a son, and that son is obviously half Chinese, half, half half white, and he's a beautiful boy, but. And they thought they were only going to have one kid. They were like, oh, this was too hard. We're not going to have another kid. <laughs> they were one of those couples. And, um, but at, after some time, they started to sense that the Lord was tugging them and pulling them to have another child. And they thought that they chose to adopt. And so they actually adopted a child from, actually, it wasn't China. It was Taiwan, right? They adopted a boy from Taiwan. They flew there to the orphanage. And they saw what the orphanage was like. And it wasn't like this horrible place. But, I mean, but there was scarcity. And in this orphanage, the children were skinny. But they were at least somewhat loved. The people around it were kind. And they tried to love these kids. But the kids were, you know, there's only so much food. And they're always kind of like understaffed and underfinanced. And the kids were skinny and hungry. And they brought their, their second son, their little Taiwanese boy. His name is William. Home, and and here is and, and and his father. His name is Craig. Craig is a dear friend, and Craig is um, actually Craig is a very successful professional. He makes quite a, he he does quite well in terms of his money, and they're well off. Their family's well off. Right? Um, Craig is totally humble about it. You you know he's he's absolutely wonderful. But he he told me a little bit what it's like to bring William home, and this is what it's like. You give him food, and he would devour it. <laughs> If you gave him two, he would eat them both. If you, they would set out more food than he could eat, and you know what he would do? He, he'd shove it all into his mouth. He was a little baby, like nine months old, and he'd just eat all that. <laughs> and they were like, whoa, 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 you need to calm down, kid. And then he would cry, want more, even though he's absolutely stuffed. That's what it was like. And they kept doing, they, they, I realized, they realized they'd have to like literally like stop giving him, and it took Time. It took time before little William, William started to plump out. If you have, he's, he's cute. He's got this little round face now. But when he first got him, he wasn't like that. And it took time, even though he was starting to plump out, for him to stop doing that, to stop just eating everything. Because he was an orphan. That's how he felt. Have any of you seen the movie The Blind Side? Anybody here? Only just a couple. I've read the book, actually. The Blind Side is a story. It's a It's a... It's based on a true story. It's a beautiful story, and I recommend the movie to you, and even better, read the book. It's a story about a very wealthy white couple who live in, um, um, I believe it's Louisiana. No? No, it's in Mississippi. It's in the south. And he's very wealthy. The father owns... Multiple Taco Bells. That's how they make money, right? The father owns multiple Taco Bells. But the, the, as the story unfolds in The Blind Side, what they end up doing is they end up taking in a teenage boy. He's a huge guy. His name is Michael Orr. And Michael is like 300 pounds. He's a natural, you know, natural offensive lineman. And that's actually what exactly Michael Orr is doing today. He plays in the NFL uh, as, as, as an offensive lineman. Well, this family, what they did was they adopted him. They adopted Michael into the family. And this family's rich. They live in, like, basically a mansion. And Michael came into the house. And Michael found out that you could go to his, he could go to his adoptive dad's Taco Bells and get food for free. 
That's what he found out. You can go to talk, you can go to these talk about, and, and first, the first time it happened, there's a funny story in, in, the, in the book where he goes to and says, hey, there's this big black kid here. It's saying he can get free food for free. What the heck is going on? And they called the, the owners like, oh, yeah, 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 give him, give to him. That's my son. Give to him. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> and so, but here, here's, the, here's, here's how the orphan thinks. Michael was, um, Michael was a ward of the state. His, uh, he was taken away from his parents because his mother, his father had abandoned him, his father, and his mother was a drug addict. And he lived on, on the streets and he lived in his friend's uh, living rooms, literally. Before he came to, um, he was living on the horrific side of town and then he came to the rich side of town. It was really crazy, right? Michael's life. But what Michael would do is he'd go to the Taco Bell, he'd get food, and then he would take more than he would need and he would stuff it away and he would have this garbage, big garbage bag and that's because that was his suitcase, so to speak, when he lived on the street and he would go from house to house, his friend's house, and he would wear out his welcome at one house to another and he would put food in that bag and his mother would come to check out his room and she would find this garbage bag and she would go into it and she would find Taco Bell, Taco Bell food in there because he would get more than he needed and he would stuff and he would leave it in there. And he kept doing this. <laughs> He kept doing this, and they were like, uh, Michael, look at this house. Did you, are you ever hungry after dinner? <laughs> She's like, but Michael kept doing this because he's afraid. Am I going to be in this house tomorrow? Am I going to have enough food tomorrow? So i got to put the Taco Bell. While I have it, i I got to put it away. That's how the orphan is. You know, I want you to think about orphans. Well, let's call them the unchurched orphan and the church to religious orphan. And I want you to just think about this a little bit. All the non-Christians that you know who don't go to church and you know, don't believe in Jesus and don't really understand why Christians actually like church and what is it all about, right? They don't, you're non-Christian. I want you to think about them as orphans. And just think about some of the poverty, right? Just, let me just point out some of the poverty. If you've been in the Father's house been in the church and been eating from his table and enjoying his family, you may not be able to relate. But I want you to just think about this, right? So some of these things. Non-Christians, they don't, they're not told regularly that they are deeply loved. They don't know that they're loved. It's actually very possible that nobody loves them. And they're not told that they're loved. But you're told, in church, you're told you're loved all the time. You sing it. They don't ever sing praise back to someone that loves them and say, you're wonderful. You have loved me. Do you know one of the reasons the Bible tells you to sing praises is because anything that you praise, you enjoy more? Next time you go to a really, you, 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 next time you go to a restaurant with your friends, notice how, how, how much everybody's like, oh, this is so good. It's In-N-Out Burger. Oh, and everybody's like laughing and enjoying the In-N-Out. It's just a burger, but it's a good burger, and you're enjoying it, and everybody praises it. Notice how they enjoy it more. Life is more. The Bible tells you to come in, praise the Lord, and you can, in, in all this, you're singing, in the singing, in the words, again, it's like this thing, you are loved all the time. They don't have that. You do it every week. It's so every week to you, it's kind of old hat to you. But if you didn't have that, you'd be con- you're conditioned to be like an orphan, lack of love. Let's go on. You have a family. Now, assuming you're in the church and you're living and we're trying to grow. I know not all churches feel like a family. But I think our church does. And we're growing in that even more. right? But you have a family. 
You come here every week. There's many people. They moved away from their family. They may not have gone along with their family. Their parents were divorced or they, had, they hated their dad or something and they moved far away and they, or they went off to college and never really came back. And then where they go, nobody really loves them. They have friends that they drink with or they party with after work or something like that. But they don't have a family. Anybody, if the bottom were to drop out in their life, so who would be there for them? Or they may have one or two, but do they have, really have a family? But you, you have a family. If the bottom drops out in your life, people will be there for you. People will care about you. It's because you're a little bit less of an orphan than them. You're not... You have an eternal home that you know where you'll be secure. You know there's such a thing as forgiveness. You know that you can make mistakes. I hope you do. There's forgiveness when you screw up. There's mercy on you for when you don't measure up. Your life is under grace. You know that? People who are outside the church, they don't know that. They don't know that. Why don't you just think about that? They don't know that. They don't know that. They're not heard this. And how about this? I'll just do one other thing that shows you. Um, among your non-Christian friends, let me just think about this. I actually did this little thought experiment while I was uh, prepping this message. Among your non-Christian friends, are they stingy? <laughs> are they stingy? I would say almost all my non-Christian friends are stingy with their money. <laughs> Some of them are stingy with their time. But a lot of them are stingy with their money. I was trying to think of among all the non-Christians that I know, and I know a number of them, who I would actually say is really free and secure in their money and they can give it away and they're, and they're okay with it and they don't even think twice about it or they don't feel that you have to pay them back, right? They don't count. I, can't, I don't know many non-Christians who do. And if they are, they're almost the exception that proves the rule. They're acting like orphans, can't you see? But let's go to something that hits a little home to maybe most of you. You could be a religious orphan. And how does that look? I just gave you little pictures of how the, the unchurched orphan, what that looks like. But what if you're religious and you're always trying to be a good Christian? Even a good Christian, not just a good person, but being a good Christian. You've got to be good. You always got to try to be good so that people will approve of you. How about Christianity becomes more of a habit? It's not necessarily this exciting thing to you. It's not the depths and the meaning of your life. It's just this habit that you do. It's kind of out there. It's, just, it's there. It's, it's one of the things. It's part of my life. right? How about something that I think is um, very... Tim Keller talks about this. I think this is really telling. Do you have a dry prayer life? Your prayer life is dry. Or the only time you ever pray is when you come to church. Or the only time you ever pray is before your meal. And it's not really much of a prayer. It's like, thank you, God, for this food. Amen. All right, let's get on with it. (laughs) Or you only pray when you're in trouble. You only pray when you need something. When you pray, do you say, oh, God, I just love you. Or I appreciate, really appreciate this. Or do you ever laugh in your prayer? You have just enjoyment. Is it like a conversation? Is it a piece of fellowship or is it just something? That, it's petition. It's entreaty. It's habit. You just don't even want to pray because it's just so dry. It's emotionally dry. Ah, you know? It's like, a, it's like an orphan. 
actually talk to a father. Right? And let me throw one more out there at you. Serving, doing stuff for the Lord. You know, ministry, it's, there's a lot of things that need to be done in the church, right? There's so many things. and The church is always looking for volunteers. And if you do any of it, you start to find, man, it's hard. And it's kind of thankless. And people don't appreciate you. And they don't go, oh, they don't pat you on the back all the time telling you how, what a good job you did. So people in the church, they often they serve and they do stuff. And, they, and this is the word I often hear, burned out. I get burnt out. Get burnt out. Why? Right? Because it's just tiring, and it's like it's not. It doesn't actually make me happy to do something for my dad. <laughs> it doesn't actually make me happy to do something for him, because I'm just doing it, and it's a chore to me. It's a chore. So we get burnt out. Right? You know, um, in this picture, I think that for many Christians, you're not talking to a father, a person that you have a deep relationship with. God is really more like a cosmic vending machine. <laughs> That's how I see it. God is a cosmic vending machine. He's the one that has all this stuff. He's the one that can bless you. He's the one that can make your life work out good, right? And how do you get the stuff? You've got to go have a relationship with him somehow, right? But that's not what we call it. What you do is church and Christianity and faith and all this stuff. You know what it is? It's the quarters, it's all the quarters. And so you go to the cosmic vending machine and you put the quarters in. You do the prayers. You give the money. You go to the Bible study. You do the quiet times. You do all the, the, the churchly stuff. You're putting the quarters in. But what happens, let me ask you something. What happens when you go to a vending machine? You ever had this experience? You go to a vending machine. You put a bunch of quarters in. And the soda didn't pop out. You ever put a bunch of quarters in? I mean, you know, there's like we have multiple kinds of vending machines. You put the quarters in, and the Twinkie doesn't come out. I happen to like Twinkies, right? <laughs> you put the quarters in, and the Gatorade doesn't pop out. The, put the quarters in, and the hot chocolate doesn't come out. Does that ever happen to you? What do you do? I'll tell you what I do. Boom! You start like beating on this thing. I mean, it's like it's 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 a totally public place, and you start going dunk dunk. Uh, have you ever done that? I've literally, I've seriously done that. I'm like, I don't really care who's watching me. I'm just like, hey, this thing has ripped me off. Boom boom! You start beating on it. If if it if that doesn't work, like every now and then, if you hit it, you know, it works like one out of like fifty times or something. You hit it, and like, oh, oh, good, 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 good. It worked. The, the, the quarter, the Twinkie comes out. But if it doesn't work, what do you start to do? You start going, like, who the heck owns this thing? You start looking around. And you, I mean, the last thing that was happening, I was at Costco. I went straight to the manager and said, hey, it's my Gatorade. <laughs> I want my quarters, man. Right? And I was like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Because that's what you start to do. But what do you do when God is the vending machine? And there's many people in the church, they're good Christians. But you just got to wait to a particular point in their life and something doesn't work. And then you find out. You know what they are? They're standing there waiting for the boyfriend to come. The job to come. The success to come. The friends to come. Where's this? God don't I go to church? Don't I do all this stuff? I'm not a good son. 
Aren't you supposed to take care of me? Aren't you supposed to be good to me? And you keep waiting and waiting for the Twinkie to come out, whatever your Twinkie is or your Gatorade thing is, and it's not happening. Then the prayer starts to go dry. Like, I'm not going to put too many quarters in there. Because you see, God is not a person to you. He's not your father. And that's when we start going dry. Then you get to have the stuff. What is mine? That's the religious spiritual orphan. You know, I'm not trying to beat down on you and condemn you. Because um, I've been there. <laughs> I know this. I know this very, very well. Let me just share a little personally before I go to the third part of the message and we close this out. When I was a young pastor, you know, the Lord called me into ministry. It's not like I'm dying to go into ministry. Let me, I, I did not want to be a pastor. You know, if you asked, or asked me in college, you want to be a pastor? Like, no. <laughs> right? I went to divinity school. <laughs> that's, that's a fancy word for seminary. It wasn't a good one because it was like a lame one. But with no plans to be a pastor, that's how clueless I was. That's how, like, no way. That's not what I'm going to do. Right? But there was a portion of my life when the church needed some leadership, and I actually had some guts to preach, so I did. And so people started getting saved, and I was like, well, this is cool. People are telling me, like, how ministry is cool. And I was like, God, I guess this will be good. If you call me to do this, I guess I can do this. And so how magnanimous would be, isn't it? God blesses the ministry, and I kind of like it, and it kind of jazzes me up a little bit and makes me feel good about myself. And so I was open. But like before that, when there was a portion in college when I, I learned that if God saves you, he can ask you anything. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I've got this point down. You know, and I remember when I first said, Lord, I'll do whatever. Just please, please don't send me to Africa. But, ugh. but if you do, I guess I'll go. <laughs> Right? I'll go. Even though I have no I don't I don't want to, right? I like my ESPN. I think I actually have ESPN in Africa now, it'd be a little easier, right? Um, it's like, no God, right? And and that's the way I came into ministry. That was my but I actually had this view, and then when God came into ministry, I was like, Yes, I'll obey you. Right? So at my first church where the Lord first placed me in ministry, I would preach and people would get all excited and they'd get all excited and then they would affirm me and tell me like, oh, this is a great thing for me and I'd feel all good about myself. I was like, cool. And then, and then the Lord called me to California and then he sent me to this little church and then, he, he, and then I knew that I was called to ministry here. This church was different. This church was hard. I would preach and the people would be bored. Okay? And they wouldn't respond. They wouldn't care. And they wouldn't go to Bible study or whatever. And then they had the audacity to tell me that I wasn't good enough. <laughs> they started biting on me. And I was like, gosh, this sucks. And let me tell you which church that was. At this church. <laughs> and so I came into ministry. And, and at this time when I was a young man, as a young pastor, I would never have admitted this. So if you had ever asked me, are you the older brother? You just want something from God, like God is a vending machine. You just want what's yours, but you don't really love the Father, right? I would say, heck no. And then you're talking about, no, 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 I love God. And I, of course, I'm faithful. I obey him or something like this. But my prayer life just shriveled up. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be in the Bible. I'm supposed to be savoring the scriptures, loving my people. But I didn't like them. Okay? There were days, quite frankly, there were some of them. I hated them. Right? I'm trying to love them. Like, I love them the next day, but I hate them. <laughs> right? And, 
I'm supposed to be in ministry. And my, my, my senior pastor at the time, he, he wasn't a, you know, a micromanaging kind of guy. He'd let me kind of roam around. And I'm supposed to be in the Bible. I'm supposed to be visiting people. I'm supposed to be having plans and praying for things like that. But I'd already put all the vending machine quarters in, and this sucky deal was all I'm getting. Where's my ministry success? Where's my affirmation? Where's the people getting saved? Where's people obeying and following me? God? And I would never have said this out loud. I could never have admitted this. But, so let me just tell you, this is embarrassing, but I'll just share with you personally, right? So this is one I did on some days. I'm not in the office, and my pastor thinks I'm out there visiting somebody, loving somebody, or just like, you know, hold away, like praying or something like that. This is what I would do. There's, I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to talk to God. I didn't want to think about God. I was feeling sorry for myself. I hated being a pastor. I was pissed off because, like, I'm smart. I went to good schools. My friends are successful. They're making big money, and they're, like, marching off into their career. And I'm a loser pastor, failing at a loser church, having a loser's life. What the heck? But I'm following you, God. That's what, I would never have said this out loud, but that's totally how I felt. That's absolutely how I felt. And so on those days when I didn't feel like doing anything, and there were many days I didn't feel like doing Some days I can make myself actually kind of get it to the work. But other days I would go to this place. There's this place down in San Jose. It's called Nickel City. Any of you guys know what this place is? <laughs> Here's what Nickel City is. It's a video game arcade. And I'm not even into video games, right? So you go down to Nickel City, you pay two bucks, and then all the games are a nickel, five cents. And since I'm cheap, I like that, right? And I'm not even into video games. I mainly played one video game because I'm into baseball. And there's this one game, and you, you, you maneuver your team through the whole game, and then you go to the World Series. And, and normally when you play this game, you only get three innings, and so you have to pop in a new quarter after any inning. But I like the nickel because then you can finish the game. And I would spend like two hours there. And I would just try to comfort myself with something in the world that I made me happy to get me off the fact that I really wasn't happy at all. Because I'm not getting my Twinkie. Okay? You been there? You know what I'm talking about? You're an emotional, spiritual orphan. And God is not being your father. To you, he's not your father. You're not treating him as a father. God is a cosmic vending machine to you. And you're ticked. Your Twinkie's not popping out. But God is withholding because what you really need is not the Twinkie, not the stuff. You need a father. I know I'm kind of long. Let me, let me close this message. The way back to sonship. This passage tells you many things. And there's many glorious pathways so you can hear the gospel. Let me just share with you one. It says in verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that is owed to me. And then he, that is the father, divided his property between them. So when the son asked for the property, the word is property. But in the, all the commentators notice this. In the Greek When it says, he divided his property between them. That's, I think, the right way to translate this. That's the way the English Standard Version, the the, the version of the Bible that we have in our pews, says it. But that's not actually literally what it says in the Greek. Literally what it says in the Greek is, he divided his property 
between them. The word there is he divided his bios between them, his bion, right? That's the word that you guys know what that word means. Bios or is the same word that comes from biology. Biology is the study of what? Life. Literally what it says is he, the father, divided his life between them. That's what it says. It's a very strange and interesting phrase. That's, think Jesus made a mistake there? No, I think he knows exactly what he's saying. Here's what the gospel teaches. Before there was any creation, before God had made a speck of dust, there was the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they had perfect, glorious, beautiful love. They had all the, the wealth. They had all the beauty and the love And they enjoyed it perfectly. And then God said, you know what? Let's have some other sons, daughters. And do you think God didn't know that they were going to be like this? (laughs) That they were going to be rats who said, I would rather be a rat and an orphan than have you as my dad. And let you be over me, have authority over me, have lordship over me. I'd rather reject that and be on my own because I just want this stuff. Do you think that God didn't know that that's what he was going to do? That's what's going to happen when he made these other sons and daughters? But he knew. And he knew there would be a day that he would have to tear not just his property, but his life apart to give and impart his wealth to these rat orphan sons and daughters. He knew it was going to have to happen. And on the cross, God sent his son with whom he is an absolute, perfect, beautiful fellowship. The life of God in the Holy Trinity. The life and the absolute, perfect, beautiful life of God. And God was going to have to tear that apart on the cross when he turns his back on his son so this son can go off into the far country just like all the other orphans to go recover them and take them back home the Father. That's what the passage is talking about. The Father tore the life of the Godhead apart. When he crucified his son, he crucified his son so that we can have a portion of his wealth in heaven as the Father. That's the gospel. See your Father See Jesus on the cross and see your Father and go to Him. Let's pray. Lord, this is a big message and it's hard. And we need you. Oh, how deep we need you. Oh, how badly we need you. So much more than church or churchiness. So much more than doing all the things. We need not just a cosmic blesser, a cosmic vending machine where we get all our stuff and what is mine, but we need a dad. We need you to pour out your love into our hearts and make us sons and daughters again to receive your love, to bask in your authority, to have you as the banner over us and to delight 
in you, in you. Take us back to you, through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.